0: Hey guys, I'm Monica Crowley, and this is the Monica Crowley podcast. Thank you so much for joining me here on this Labor Day where a patriot's work is never done. We're kicking off a brand new week and also a brand new month, the month of September. Can you believe it? Summer has flown by, life is flying by, and the work of the Patriots never ends. This is your go-to for hot liberty, a safe space for all of us thought criminals, independent thinkers, and happy warriors. Please follow me on Instagram at Monica Crowley underscore and on Twitter and True Social at Monica Crowley. Also, you can send me an email about this show. Let me know what you're thinking. Monica Crowley Podcast at gmail.com. That's Monica Crowley Podcast at gmail.com. Well, like I said, it is Labor Day, and I am here laboring for you and for America. Uh, because I definitely wanted to be here to just share some thoughts about what's happened over the weekend with President Trump, uh, the fallout from Joe Biden. We're going to get to that. Also, we've got a fantastic interview with NASCAR superstar Kyle Petty. He is the son of NASCAR legend Richard Petty. He's also a NASCAR legend in his own right, And he's got a brand new memoir out with some incredible stories to tell. I promise you, this is going to be a dynamite conversation with Kyle Petty. I wanted to do something a little different here on Labor Day because, you know, things are very heavy. They're going to get a lot more heavy as we get into the election season. This is really the marker today, Labor Day, when people really start paying attention to the midterms, to how they're going to vote and so on. So from here on out until November we are going you know to the wall for America and for America First candidates making sure everybody knows that we need all hands on deck going into November. So it's going to be a pretty heavy uh time and I I don't put anything past the left in terms of what they are willing to pull to try to throw this election. We do need as much energy on our side as possible. We need as much activism as possible. We need everybody signing up to be election observers, election day workers. Uh, If you're an attorney, again, volunteer your services. If there are legal challenges in your area, we need everybody uh, at full fighting strength uh, going into uh, into November, so today I thought as we kick off this new month and we are here on this holiday of Labor Day, I thought we'd do something a little different and bring in a little levity, which uh, we're going to do when we talk to Kyle Petty, who is such a lovely person. Not only is he a NASCAR champion, but he's just a really a, a great person. So that's not to be missed. That's coming up here. Also, I want to mention that on Wednesday. I don't know if you've heard about this new film called My Son Hunter. It's incredible. It's just incredible. And it's directed by my friend Robert Davi, who is also a legendary actor. He is one of us. Um, he doesn't care about Hollywood. He just wants to stand up and do what's right for America. So he's making these incredible films. But this one, My Son Hunter, is going to be released on Wednesday. So Robert Davi is going to join us to talk about the film and how it got made. And also we're going to be joined by the guy who plays Joe Biden, His name is John James. He's an extraordinary actor. We're going to talk to them about the making of this film and if they've heard anything from Hollywood. My guess, no. Although over the weekend, I saw on Twitter that the guy who plays Hunter Biden, and he's amazing as Hunter Biden, uh, his agents dropped him. So his agents basically fired him. That, that's what you get for standing up for America and telling the truth about the Biden crime family. So we'll talk to John James and we'll talk to Robert Davi about my son Hunter and the fallout. And a- again, we need to be supporting these films. So that's why I wanted to have them on to talk about how they made it, how it got done, etc. So that's on Wednesday. And you guys, on Friday on this show, we're going to have one of my big teen crushes, going to join us, Kirk Cameron, the iconic Kirk Cameron, who played, of course, Mike Seaver on Growing Pains. He has dedicated his life now to faith, to his family, and to producing faith and family oriented content. He's got a brand new movie out called Life Mark about adoption, which coming on the heels of Roe v. Wade very, very important movie and perfectly timed. So the great Robert Davi and John James coming up here on Wednesday. And then on Friday, we're going to talk to the one and only Kurt Cameron. I hope I don't swoon too much. I hope I don't embarrass myself. I had a big crush on Mike Seaver on Growing Pain. So he's going to be here and we'll have a fantastic conversation with all three of these people who are really out there swinging, trying to change the culture. Critically important. Okay, today though, first up, the Monica Memo. So we have had a tale of two speeches in the last couple of days. We had Biden's, which was a dark despotism full of threats, division, nihilism, and hate. And then over the weekend, we had President Trump's, a positive patriotism full of promise, unity, faith. And love, love of America. So there is your choice. And forget about 24 for a minute. Think about 22. Think about November. This is your choice. Forget about Biden and Trump for a second. Set those two personalities aside. Just strip it down. The message you got from Joe Biden versus the message you got at Trump's rally in Pennsylvania from him. One is darkness and one is light. You know how I always talk to you guys about how this is a spiritual battle? It really is. And I always say, once you see it that way, you can't unsee it. Exactly so. And for Biden and Trump to come out within 48 hours of each other in the same location, by the way. Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania. So Trump did the ultimate troll. I think he was going to go to Pennsylvania anyway to support Mastriano running for governor and Dr. Oz running for Senate. He was going to do a rally anyway. But I love that he trolled uh, Biden in his home state in, in the exact same location. Meanwhile, Joe Biden could not even fill a high school gym earlier last week Whereas President Trump had thousands and thousands and thousands of people. We have never seen anything like that. We've never seen a former president drive this kind of energy and crowds and enthusiasm. And yes, it's hanging out there that he could run again. But I think even if he didn't run again, he'd still be driving this, this kind of energy in these kinds of crowds. It's extraordinary. You know, I worked for a former president, President Nixon who was a genius, spectacular, intellectual, brilliant president. And yes, you know, Watergate happened and he had a role in it and he took responsibility for it. But Richard Nixon was an incredible president. Ronald Reagan was an incredible president. But in their post-presidential years, could they have packed arenas? Could they have packed like these huge outdoor areas? No. No, I don't think so. Maybe half. You know, people would be interested. They want to see a former president. It's an honor, it's a privilege. So I, I think they could draw some crowds, but crowds like this, no, no. So Donald Trump is an exceptional personality on the American stage. He was an extraordinary president and an exceptional figure. And of course, they hate him and they're they're moving heaven and earth to try to stop him again. But the fact that Trump trolled Biden was brilliant. So Trump did this rally over the weekend on Saturday night in Wilkes-Barre. Amazing rally. He was pure fire. The guy never ages. I don't know what is going on there with him. I, I want it. He should bottle it and sell it because I think we'd all take it. He's like aging in reverse. He's like Benjamin Button. Incredible energy. And he changed the end of his speech a little bit. And he set it to music. So you had this sort of dramatic music for the last couple of minutes of his clothes. And it's just, it gives you chills. It's absolutely incredible. But that contrast between those two, between Biden promising this dark despotism, which he's already delivering, which is based on rage and hate and division, which is not what America's all about, but that's what Biden and the communists are all about, versus Trump, who was positive, he was funny. I laughed out loud a couple of times like I usually do. He did like two hours of stand-up like he usually does, but also with a very serious message about bringing this country back. And I said to my friend who was watching the rally with me, I said, you know what, I cannot believe that he's going to do this again. I can't believe that they screwed him over and rigged the election into, I mean, I can't believe it, but I, I just can't believe that, you know, he would have been halfway through right now his second term if they didn't screw him over. They screwed him over. They continue to try to screw him over. But I cannot believe... That this, he has to do all of this all over again. Everything that he did in 2015 and 2016 about making America great again, bringing the country back, what a heavy lift it's going to be. And actually, you know, after eight years of Obama, it was a heavy lift to turn the country around, but Trump did it. Now, after four years of Biden and what he and the communists are doing to this country, it's going to be an even heavier lift if Trump can get reelected to try to turn this nation around because the communists are entrenching everything. So it's going to be even more intense in terms of bringing the country back. If they allow Trump to be the nominee, if they allow Trump to win, which, you know, we've got to be all on guard, but the, the election that is right in front of us on this labor day, just a couple of weeks away, what, 10 weeks, nine weeks, I guess now, Um, is the midterm elections. And those two visions of America, from Biden and Trump, if you just separate those two men out, those are the two visions facing us. And the first political step that we can take is making sure that we change Congress to make sure that Congress changes hands and goes into the Republicans. Again, not that the Republicans are so great, okay? I've got big problems with McConnell, McCarthy, you name it. The leadership sucks. But we've got to elect as many pro-America, America first candidates as possible in order to at least make a first step of stopping this and then turning it around. So that is our mission going into November. That is what we're focused on. And I really found over the weekend that Biden's speech and Trump's speech really put it all into bold relief. That, that, that those two visions could not be more stark and they could not be more clear. And so we need to thank Biden and we need to thank Trump for doing it on the cusp of Labor Day going into this weekend that, that they have illustrated for us exactly what the choice is. Now, our friend Scott Pressler, who we've had on this show, he's doing amazing work. He's doing the hard work on the ground of registering voters to the Republican Party, switching people over from the Democrats. He has been in swing states. He's been in states like New York, getting people registered. He's out there at gas stations. Remember earlier in the summer, he was on this show. He's extraordinary. Follow him on Twitter if you can. He's incredible, Scott Pressler. He tweeted this morning saying that, He's not sure we're going to have a red wave because, you know, he's out there talking to people and while people are like, yeah, I'm going to vote Republican and he's doing great work in that sense, he also feels like our side is not prepared enough in terms of doing the door-to-door stuff, the ground game, knocking on doors, handing out pamphlets, um, talking to people, signing up to be election day workers, I've talked to you guys about this a lot and I, I please, I encourage you to please volunteer your time, your money, your expertise, whatever you can give to make sure that this final push, these final nine weeks goes our way. We don't just have election day anymore. We've got election month, election weeks. So we have to start now talking to people. People love that one-to-one contact. I remember years ago uh, working with a group called Americans for Prosperity, and they taught us that if you send a piece of mail, like regular mail out to people, it usually goes in the garbage. So I think the impact, if my memory serves, the impact was like 20 to one, right? Most people just take what they perceive as junk mail, throw it away if it came digitally via like a Facebook or Twitter ad, or if it came via email to you or a text from a campaign, it had a, a stronger impact. I think it was more like mm, four or five to one, something like that. But they said face-to-face interaction, knocking on doors, actually talking to voters was a one-to-one impact impact that really stayed with me. People want to see another human being make contact with them, talk to them about their questions, their concerns, answer any questions or issues that they might have. That human interaction means so much to people, especially now in this crazy social media world that you know everything is digital and everything is uh, this like very unhuman kind of way. So if there is real human contact, it makes a huge difference. That's why what Scott Pressler is doing is major. So he's encouraging everybody on our side to really start, you know, get up with the local Republican Party in your town, knock on doors, put up signs, do all of the ground game stuff that's necessary to mobilize our voters. We've got to get the voters to the polls So however you can do that in your community is going to make a world of difference because he's putting up the warning signs. He's saying, look, I don't see a red wave, maybe a red trickle. There are certain states like Arizona where it looks better for us than others, say maybe Pennsylvania. But, you know, if we're going to do this, if we're going to see this, we got to put in the work. The other side does 24 hours a day, seven days a week. They're out there putting up the work, but unless we step up. He said it's not going to happen and he's not an alarmist, but he does tell the truth. And I saw that tweet this morning and I said, I got to share it with you guys because that's what this show is all about. It's about mobilizing. So let's get it together, okay? Do you want the fascist pantomime to continue or do you want to start turning this country around? It's up to us. The country still belongs to us. But again, we got to do what we got to do in order to make that happen. Okay. All right, guys, let's hit a quick break. When we come back, we're going to talk to NASCAR legend, Kyle Petty, who has some incredible stories to tell on this Labor Day. I thought it would be really fun conversation to have on this holiday and he is not going to let us down. It's going to be dynamite. So sit tight. Okay, everybody, listen up. We all want to be healthier, right? Well, to get there, we have to have a healthier diet, which is not always easy to do. I can attest to that. You know, that shredded lettuce in a double-double and the fruit filling in a donut are amazing, but they do not count toward the recommended five servings of fruits and vegetables a day. Sorry to be the one to break it to you, but they don't. I don't always eat healthy either, but I will share that the Mayo Clinic says if you want to help prevent heart disease, lower blood pressure, and cholesterol, eat five servings of fruits and vegetables every day. I don't, and you probably won't. That's why I take Field of Greens. Unlike other supplements, each fruit and each vegetable in Field of Greens was medically selected by doctors to support your vital organs, like the heart, lungs, kidneys, and the immune system. and take Field of Greens. Let me get you started with 15% off your first order. Visit fieldofgreens.com and use promo code MONICA. That's promo code MONICA at fieldofgreens.com, fieldofgreens.com. Well, today I'd like to do something different, something really fun and interesting as a palate cleanser from all of the usual stuff that we do on this show in terms of politics and and all the negative stuff. So I am absolutely thrilled to switch gears and have with me today Kyle Petty. Kyle is, of course, a former NASCAR racer, and he's also a current commentator on NBC Sports. He's also, of course, the son of seven-time NASCAR champion Richard Petty and the grandson of racer Lee Petty. So you could say racing runs in the family. It is a family business. Lee Petty, of course, credited as one of the founding fathers of the racing sport. So he also, I want to make, make mention that Kyle is the father of the late racer Adam Petty, um, who was tragically killed in a crash during practice for a race in May of 2000. And we're going to get into that with him as well. Kyle last drove the number 45 Dodd Charger for Petty Enterprises, where he formerly served as CEO. He's also very active in a lot of charitable causes, including Victory Jun. Victory Junction, which is a camp that serves children with serious medical conditions. And that was founded in honor of his late son, Adam. He also leads an annual motorcycle ride, the Kyle Petty Charity Ride Across America, which is fantastic and is as if all of that weren't enough. He's also the author of the brand new memoir called Swerve or Die, Life at My Speed in the First Family of NASCAR Racing. Kyle Petty, welcome.
1: Thank you for that. Listen, thank you for that introduction. You could have just said, and now we have Kyle. And that would have been good (laughs) enough. (laughs) I promise you, that would have been good enough.
0: It would not have been good enough because you're so accomplished and you're such a a good and fine man and you do so much good work that I really want to spend a lot of time with you today, Kyle, taking it all apart. And I love this book. Again, it's called Swerve or Die. And everybody needs to take a look at this. Whether you're in NASCAR, into NASCAR or not, this book is just such a beautiful story and so well told. So it's an honor to have you here.
1: It is an honor to be here. Thank you for having me and, and giving us this platform to talk about this book, because there's a lot of stuff uh, that came straight from my heart and soul in this book. So thank you for giving us this platform.
0: Well, of course, and you can certainly tell that in the book, Kyle. So why did you decide to tell your story and why now?
1: You know, I, I, th- I think, and, and it's funny because I love music. I write about music and in, in, in the book a little bit. Um, and, and it's been so interesting coming out of the pandemic where so many artists and so many people have said, you know, it was a bad time, but it was an incredibly creative time because I was able to, to just lock up and look within. And that's kind of the way I was. Um, I was fortunate that, that my wife, Morgan, and uh, allowed me the time to, to go into the attic and, and lock the door and look within. And uh, there were stories that she had always and people always said, man, you need to write a book. you got so many funny stories and so many crazy stories about your time uh, in the sport. You need to write a book. And having that year, year and a half, two year time uh, to really be to set and reflect, to set and kind of look over your shoulders. I never looked back. I just looked over the shoulder a little bit um, to set and have that time. It gave me an opportunity and I got a little lost. I will say that I got a little lost. I wrote the world's longest run on sentence with no punctuation. (laughs) Uh, My wife said, you got to get help. And we got Ellis Hennigan and he come and and he kind of put, helped me put stuff together and gave me uh, um, a process uh, and put us in a process. So, The time was just seemed to be right to do something at this point.
0: Well, I I've known Ellis a long time, so you certainly were in very good hands with him, Kyle. He's he's just terrific. So the and the book is just wonderful. Um, And I understand choosing that moment in time to say, okay, now the time is right to to tell my story. So obviously, Kyle, you your last name is Petty. You come from a long line of very successful racers, including your dad and your grandfather, as I mentioned. Did you always want to go into the family business or was there ever a time growing up when you, like you said, you got lost, when you, you really wanted to rebel and thought, you know, did you ever think, you know what, you know, forget about racing. I want to be like a caterer or open a dry cleaning shop. <sighs>
1: Well, my mom wanted me to be a pharmacist. I I will throw that out. We start this. Um, She had dreams of owning uh, the soda fountain and the soda shop with the drugstore in it, and and our small town of Randleman, North Carolina. And I was going to be the pharmacist, and she was going to work the ice cream counter. That that was her dream of us working together. I chose to go uh, and and follow my dad. And and you know, it's funny as far as. As rebellion, as far as I got was, I think I want to drive a race car for somebody else, not for you. That's about it. I just wanted to drive a race car. And I I tell people this a lot. I grew up in rural North Carolina. Uh, Most of the kids I went to school with most and almost all of our neighbors, uh, they were dairy farmers. They were tobacco farmers. um, You know, they were just farmers. We just happened to have a farm that raised race cars. And, And that's kind of the way I look at it. There's lots of third and fourth generation farms. Uh, where I grew up. So it was not uncommon. It was not odd. You didn't stick out. You didn't stand out because you followed your fathers and you followed your grandfather because that's what we did. That's what we did in rural North Carolina. That's what, what country people did. You followed what your dad did. Uh, and I always wanted to be like my dad and granddad. So from the time I was was four or five years old, I knew at some point in time I was going to get in a car with a number on the side of it and ride around in circles for a living.
0: <laughs> well, you know, you, you talk about people from the South and North Carolina. Uh, these are salt of the earth people, as you and your family are. So I, you know, if you maybe were in the Northeast or California, you may have had that rebellious moment, Kyle, where you were like, yeah, I think I'm going to go like open a bagel shop instead of getting in a car with a number on it.
1: Maybe. <laughs> uh, you know what? But I, I tell you, it, it is. And you know what? It, it's amazing because, um, and and I've thought about this. And people always will say, "Well, what would you do if you weren't a race car driver?" I just never thought about doing anything other than that. Yeah, uh, you, you know. And and it it is crazy to think to to set and daydream and say, "What could you have been?" Um, and listen, I don't think there's. I I would have been a, not a model employee. I can tell you that I I am used to just working my own schedule and doing my own stuff. So no matter what I chose, I wouldn't have been a model employee.
0: (laughs) Did you ever have a moment of self doubt Kyle, where you thought, man, you know, my father is such a legend. My grandfather really founded this whole sport. What if I'm not good at this?
1: No, Um,
0: I I, I, (laughs) I love the self-confidence.
1: Yeah. And I, and I don't I don't want that to sound cocky or arrogant. I, I just didn't because I grew up with that attitude uh, from my grandfather and from my dad that you can do anything you want to do. You can be anything you want to be as long as you work hard at it and as long as you focus on it, um, you can you can be successful. There's various stages of success. I tell people all the time. My dad won seven championships and 200 races. Uh, and that's a big that's a long shadow. That's a, that's a, he cast a shadow, not only on me, maybe more on me because my last name was petty, like his, obviously. Um, But I would walk in to the racetrack and there was nobody else at the racetrack that had won seven championships and 200 races. His shadow was on the whole sport. Everyone was chasing that one guy. I just happened to grow up with that guy. So I didn't look at it. I I never looked at it that way to say, you're not going to be successful. I knew I would find success in my own way, in my own time, uh, doing it my way. I've said this a thousand times. If you took my grandfather and you took my father and you took myself, and then when Adam came along, if you took him and and you had the opportunity uh, to sit here and my granddad's sitting in this chair, you ask him five questions. My dad comes in, he sits in this chair. You ask him five questions. You ask me the same five questions and you ask Adam. As soon as we all left the room, you would look at somebody else and say, those four guys don't even know each other. Uh, they, they're not related. There's no way because we're so different. And I think we measured success different. But we all had that opportunity because of our parents, because of my father, because of my grandfather, uh, because of my mother. Uh, we had that opportunity to do it our way and to be our person, our own person, uh, and to approach life that way.
0: You know, I think that's a really important point, Kyle, about the way your parents and in particular with regard to raising your father – treated you and and handled you and and the profession because a lot of children of very famous people or very wealthy people people you know the the first generation that really or second generation that really achieves the legendary status their children are often on their back heel because it's very difficult to grow up in the shadow particularly sons with very famous or powerful fathers find it very difficult to navigate that, and yet you seem to be, have surrounded by, you know, a family that really cultivated you, supported you, uh, and were were willing to allow you to develop and blossom in your own way.
1: Yeah, and listen, I I think, and and that has been the blessing of my life, Um, you know, and and I've said that before, um, that to grow up in a rural environment, to grow up in a small town where where Richard Petty, when when you went to town, he wasn't Richard Petty. He was just Richard. You know, he, he went to school with everybody there. My grandfather was just Lee. I was just Kyle. Uh, so you had that opportunity to escape that, uh, the the view of the world or, or everybody that was looking at you and staring at you because of what you did and because of that level of notoriety that, that your family had achieved. You went back to that safe place. So to grow up in that, that environment, but to get out and get that glimpse and then come back, um, it was – I think that balance, and and I think you know my mom um, was an amazing woman. She raised myself and 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 three three sisters, and we were on the road. We were dragging across the country, going to races, and uh, and going places. And I tell people too. At the same time, my dad would drag us to California to the race, or drag us to to Detroit to the race, to Michigan or to Florida. You know what? When we were in Florida, we went to Cape Canaveral. We learned about rockets. We learned about putting a man on the moon. We learned about NASA. When we went to to Detroit, we went to uh, the Henry Ford Museum. We learned the history. My mom was always, always looked at every road trip we went on as educational. Uh, She was going to teach her kids something. She just wasn't going to drag them to a racetrack somewhere. She was going to teach her kids something. So that kind of rounded us all out uh, to let us know there was a bigger world out there. Uh, than just racing. There was a little bigger world than just being in the shadows of uh, and having that last name. So um, I give her most of the credit for the way I turned out. My dad always looks at me when he's mad at me. and He says, you're just like your mom. You're just like your mom. Uh, and I take that as a compliment.
0: (laughs) And you say, thank you very much, Pop. (laughs) Oh, that's great, Kyle. Tell us about your very first race, because when I watch NASCAR, when I watch the NFL, um, I, you know, I always wonder, do these professional athletes still get nervous when they've done it for a while? But I can imagine the first race, did you have a case of nerves?
1: The first race was crazy for me uh, because my dad never let me race. He he just wouldn't most people grow up in this sport. And, and the guys you talk to now, the Kyle Bushes, uh, the Kyle Larson's, the Joey Logano's, they grew up running go-karts and then quarter midgets. And then they moved on to bandoleros or legends cars and then to late models. And they came up through the ranks um, before they made it to Daytona or they made it to Charlotte or they made it to the cup cup level of NASCAR. Um my dad had a, had a totally different view with me. Uh, we had cup cars, so he, he assumed I should just run cup races. Uh, and he kept telling me, 21, you got to be 21. But finally, he relented when I was 18. Uh, there was an old race car in the corner. He said, you get that thing ready. We'll go, to, we'll go test. We got it ready. Uh, and he said, we're going to Daytona. It's a two and a half mile racetrack. It's the biggest racetrack we run on uh, in Talladega, our, our two super speedways. Uh, I'm 18 years old. He takes me down there and throws me in the car and we go out and run 193 miles an hour with him talking, explaining to me, it's just like driver's ed, you know, it's like having your dad in the, in the driver's seat. And he's explaining to you how to parallel park uh, (laughs) and and how to, and how to negotiate a four way stop. but we're just doing it at 193 miles an hour. (laughs) And then he, then he hands me a helmet and says, now it's your turn. Go out there and do it. And that's how I learned to race. Um, and it was, I tell people that today, and they look at me like I have three heads. It is almost, it's almost like taking a high school kid and inserting and, 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 and him into uh, a game seven situation in the NBA finals uh, and say, hey, you want to play basketball? Here's where you learn. You learn at the top, man. And that's the way it was. So that's how I started. That was my first race. I was, I didn't know enough to be nervous. Um, I was too excited to be driving a race car, to be nervous. Uh, and honestly, just like I said before, I was probably a little bit overconfident. Uh, when you have that overconfidence uh, and you think you're 18, you know everything, you're invincible. Right. Uh, I, I never really got that nervous. I was only nervous when I watched the video of it and watched the, uh, the tape of it after because uh I was lucky to come back. I was lucky to come back. I should have hit a lot of stuff out there and not made it back.
0: <laughs> well, you know, Kyle, this is why young adults get recruited into the the military because when you're young and and stupid, you don't know <laughs> what you don't know and you That's you right. can't anticipate the threats because you got the swagger and you're prepa- you think you're prepared and you just go do it. So that was a real baptism by fire for you.
1: For sure. For sure. And, you know, here the funny part is um, I had been going to races um, and and with my dad from the time I was in the third grade. I traveled with him during the summer. As soon as school was out, boom, I'm in that truck. We're in the car. We're going all over the country. Uh, Not so much my mom and my sisters. They they can't they would come around later, but I just traveled with my dad. So I had watched and been around what felt like an eternity of racing. Um, I'd watched a million people do it. I'd watched my dad and David Pearson and Kelly Yarbrough and Buddy Baker and those guys, guys I grew up that were my were heroes and became legends and gods of this sport when you look back on it now. Uh, but they were just regular guys, and I'd watched it. And I used to think, man, those forty year old guys, they, I could go out there and beat them. I went out there with them the first time, and I thought to myself, these are the toughest guys I've ever seen in my life. I respected them in a totally different way. But it was. To be thrown on a racetrack with those guys was baptism by fire.
0: Yeah, it's like taking a toddler and throwing a toddler into the pool and say swim.
1: Yeah. <laughs> exactly. And, and that's again, a, that's a better example. That yeah. it that's that it, I was the toddler. I just did, I just didn't want to admit I was the toddler.
0: So, did you feel, Kyle, in that first race or first maybe year of racing, did you feel uh, you know, you had the confidence, but did you feel any of the sky-high expectations from the crowd? Given your last name,
1: yes, you do feel that, um, and, and and you know what, and and it's funny, um, Dale Earnhardt Jr., uh, whose father Dale Earnhardt Sr. passed away at Daytona in two thousand one. We've talked about this, um, and, and at different at different times, and talked about you know, fans, um, they just they love the sport, they love NASCAR, they love racing, and and they expect you to be. A clone of your dad. They expect you to be certain things. And, and in the end, you become, you become a, progr- a, a screen and they project their hopes and their dreams and their aspirations on you. It's their movie. They want to yes. see it come out the way they want to see it. That's not necessarily the movie that you are. That's not how you're, you're, you react and how you do things. And, and I think we both learned uh, early on, that you're not going to be that, you know, you couldn't be that. You're never going to be that. Nobody else was that, you know what I mean? And, and, you know, we had to make our own movie. We had to be our own, own people. Um, And I think that's how you both, we both survive. You create your own, you you just be who you are. You you know, you're just who you are. Uh, It's it's funny. I tell people, my dad, uh, and if you, if you follow me, wears boots, cowboy boots, always wears dark glasses Has had a cowboy hat for the last 30 or 40 years. Uh, that's just who he is. That that's Richard Petty. When you see him walk in, when you see him walk in without a hat, you don't recognize him. That's how long he's worn a hat. <laughs> yeah. For me, for me, I just went, I just became Kyle. I had a ponytail forever, had earrings back in the nineties and, and early two thousand. Uh, and just different times, you know, it's just different things. You just went in a different direction. So we were definitely not clones uh and look alike. We weren't clones in personality. Um, but we 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 again. We were just allowed to be ourselves.
0: Well, I love that, that you could have your own identity and and you had the space to do that. Kyle, I've got so much more for you, so I'm going to ask you to please stand by. We're going to hit a quick break. We've got more on the other side with the great Kyle Petty. His new memoir is called Swerve or Die, Life at My Speed in the First Family of NASCAR Racing. First, though, I'd like to take a moment to welcome a brand new sponsor, Worthy. There's a new easy way to get money for that diamond jewelry that you're not wearing. It's called Worthy. Worthy is a platform that can get you up to two or three times as much money as a pawn shop or local jewelry shop will offer you with zero risk. Worthy puts your jewelry in front of a worldwide network of professional buyers, people who will bid against each other for your diamond. And Worthy makes it so easy. Free shipping, free insurance coverage, free professional grading and evaluation, and you're in control from start to finish. If your price isn't met, you don't have to sell and you get it back no charge. And now for a limited time, you'll get an extra $100 when your jewelry sells for over $1,500. All you have to do is register at Worthy.com Monica. That's worthy.com slash Monica. Get more for your diamond jewelry at worthy.com slash Monica. Worthy, a better way to cash in on that hidden asset hanging out in your jewelry box. We'll be right back. Sit tight. Okay, we're back with a great Kyle Petty. His new book is called Swerve or Die, Life at My Speed and the First Family of NASCAR Racing. It is a phenomenal memoir, very personal. And if you, whether or not you, you like NASCAR or follow NASCAR, you should be reading this book anyway, because it's just a great life story with a lot of great life lessons. Kyle, walk us through the average race day. Because I wonder that too, when I see you guys coming out and you're ready to to get in the car, how do you prepare? what do you eat? Are you carbo loading you know are you eating big plates of spaghetti? do you pray and and do you still have that sense of excitement and confidence like I know you're no longer raising, but yeah. throughout your entire career did you still have that same routine?
1: Oh yeah, yeah, I listen and, and to 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 go to approach. You, you always sleep as late as possible. I, I'm just going to go ahead and say oh, that. Oh,
0: that I love. <laughs> but, but, yeah,
1: because, because the thing is you, you've got to, and, and I think what what we have to do, we have to move motorsports and, and especially NASCAR drivers uh, into that endurance category, that endurance athletic category, uh, athlete care category. You, you're sitting in that car for sometimes three and a half to five hours uh, at 130 or 40 degree temperature. Uh, you're dead focused on what's going on all the time, all the time from speeds from 80 miles an hour to a hundred mi- or 200 miles an hour. So that mental, that mental sharpness, that mental uh, focus, it has to be there lap after lap, after lap after lap. And there's no timeouts. Even when we catch a caution, it's not a timeout. You're, you're, you're talking to your crew members, you're working on things to make the car better, to make the day better, to make the race better. Uh, so it is. It's 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 incredibly intense. So when you sleep, uh, you get a good meal, you get a good meal. Uh, and and you know that when you get in that car, what you did on Thursday, Friday, Saturday or or Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday has prepared you for what you're getting ready to do on Sunday as far as physically, uh, as far as the food intake and what you've done there. So these guys are athletes. I, I mean, so many times people, they want to argue that point, And I don't care. You can look at it any way you want to. I've played other sports. I've done other stuff, and I consider race car drivers athletes, and I'm not going to argue that with people, but I think you 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 do that, but there's so many things that a driver has to go through on race day, and our sport is run by sponsors and, and is driven by sponsors. If it's Coca-Cola, um, if it's Dodge, if it's, if it's Chevy, if it's Ford, if it's Toyota, most of the time, You have to go out to that hospitality area and meet fans and talk to fans and meet and greets and meet corporate people and talk business. And then your safe place is in that race car. Finally, you get to crawl in that race car and put on that helmet and drive that race car. And that's the reason you became a race car driver. You didn't become a race car driver to be on TV. You didn't become a race car driver uh, to do all the corporate stuff and to have all these sponsors. When you were a little boy of five or six years old and you closed your eyes at night, you dreamed that you were hanging on to a steering wheel and you were winning the Daytona 500, that you were hanging on that steering wheel and you were beating Dale Earnhardt Sr. or Jeff Gordon, that you were the guy. That was your dream. And finally, you're in that car on race day and the dream begins. Uh, and and you're still just as excited as this, if you're that five-year-old boy. I, I was very, very blessed to grow up with my dad and watch my dad and watch... How excited he got uh, to get in a car, how, how excited the other guys got to get in a car. Uh, and, and I've said it after after an entire career, I, I, I was able to race forever. And then I had to wake up one morning and go get a job because I had never had a job and <laughs> had never had a job in my life because driving a race car was not a job. It was an honor. It was a pleasure. Uh, And it was always like being in third grade and hearing that bell ring for recess. It was time to go outside and play. And you were excited to be going outside and play.
0: It was a passion. It wasn't a job. It was a passion. And it really was the love of your life, in addition to your wife and your family, of course. But yeah. And and they say, you know, when you really love what you do, work doesn't seem like work and you'll never work a day in your life. So you were very, very blessed. You know, on that that point, Kyle, when you say when you retired from racing, you had to go get a real job. um, You know, I'm just curious about the rhythm of your week when you're racing. Because you guys race on Sundays and I've yes. worked weekends too. I know a lot of Americans work on weekends, but the vast majority of Americans do have their weekends off. And I always felt when I was working weekends that the energy was different. It's different in the world and it's different for you when you step out there to do your job. Did you feel any of that? I know that's kind of a quirky question, but- no. Uh, you no. know, w- w- when you're working and Saturday you're doing full prep, and then Sunday you are actually doing the race. You're actually working. Does the energy feel different to you guys working on the weekends?
1: Yes, it, it does. It, listen, it's it's it is that r- fl- flow. It is that rhythm. Um, you know, I, I, until I retired, I didn't. I had no clue that people mowed their yards on the weekend, that people (laughs) went to the lake on the weekend, that people did other things. You know, I mean, their life was the rhythm of five days on, two days off, five days on, two days off. Uh, Our our rhythm, we had Mondays off. Monday was our whole weekend, was our Saturday and Sunday. We packed everything in Monday. Uh, There was nobody out on the lake. If you wanted to go out on the lake on Monday, you had it all to yourself, you know? Uh, Nobody cranked their lawnmowers on Monday. You were the only guy out in your front yard mowing your yard on Monday. But- there is that 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 thing where you're showing up on a Saturday or Sunday to work and you look around and everybody else is showing up on their day off. Yes. Everybody else is showing up to watch you. They're here to have fun. They're here to be entertained. They're here to enjoy the weekend. Uh and and that's what the, that's what it's all about. And you look around and sometimes you envy that. You know what I mean? You you envy that. Man, I'd like to be sitting on top of that camper in the infield watching these guys race. You know, what I mean, that would be that might be my idea of a good vacation. But it is that quirkiness of your your rhythm. If everybody else's rhythm is here, your rhythm is moved two beats to the right. Uh, and, and that's the way life is. Uh, but it's funny because you get so caught up in that rhythm that when you have a weekend off. You just pull your hair out. You don't know what to do. Uh, <laughs> yeah. it, it, just, it just shuts down. It's like they have taken my toys away and I can't play. And I'm a mad little toddler. Uh, so keep the door locked and don't let me outside.
0: Yeah, no, I, I love that you answered that question that way, Kyle. Because I'm always curious about people and how they live their lives and what rhythm that they have in their life. Any any good gossip on some of your, uh, you know, fellow competitors that you want to share? Who was your, fa- your your like favorite person to compete against, and and was there any drama that you can share with us?
1: You know what? That those are good questions. Um, you know, here's the thing. Everybody was your competition uh, and and you you had to 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 approach it that way it's it 's a funny sport and it it has changed through the years um, and and I will say this as my grandfather raced and my father raced and, and I learned this from my father um, was you didn 't become friends with other drivers um, and, and you didn 't become friends. Their main reason that you didn 't become friends was they grew up in a time when there were fatalities in the sport. A lot of drivers would lose their lives. A lot of serious injuries through the 50s and 60s and into the early 70s. Myself, uh, I remember playing with kids in the infield uh, inside the racetrack and their mom would come get them. And to this day, I've not seen those kids again because their father was killed in a race that my dad was competing in. So you didn't get close to other drivers. I came along when drivers were acquaintances. Uh, You raced against them. But at the same time, you knew your job on Sunday afternoon was to go out and pound them into submission uh, to beat them and take food off their table and take money out of their pocket. That was your job. We're at a point now where the drivers, uh, they have a close it's a close camaraderie. It is a lot of them are really good friends. They play golf together. They do a lot of things together. Um, So the driver and how drivers approach things um, have evolved. Uh, through the years. And, and, you know, like when I, when I came along I I was friends with Alan Kowicki with Davey Allison, both those guys were, were, were killed away from the racetrack. Um, And it, and it hurt a lot. It hurt a lot because you lost a friend, but at least you had that, that line that it was away from the racetrack. It wasn't on the racetrack. Um, So there were moments when, when with Dale Jarrett, with a lot of guys uh, that I grew up with, 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 the Pearsons, guys like that, that I grew up with, you couldn't help but reminisce and go back. But I never really got close to a lot of guys um, because I followed my father's advice uh, from the very, very beginning. Uh, I I write in the book, Michael Waltrip, who drove, drives a race car. He lived with me for a little while when he first came down, we weren't competitors at the time. So it was okay for him to move in with me. Uh, And I tell people is is Titillating and as gossipy as I get in the book is, I tell everybody that Michael Waltrip has stinky feet uh, because (laughs) one night I came, one day we came back and my this place stunk and I I I traced it down to Michael's shoes and just threw them away and that was the end. (laughs) There's a story about that in the book, but that's about that's about all I'm going to throw in the gossip category is. Don't don't be around Michael with his, his
0: shoes. <laughs> well, Kyle, don't be around my shoes, not because they smell, but if you ever threw away any of my shoes, there'd be hell to pay. Let me tell you that. Um, all right. I have a final batch of questions for you. So let's hit another quick break and then we're going to wrap it up with the great Kyle Petty. His new book is called Swerve or Die. So stay tuned for more juicy questions. All right, we're back with Kyle Petty. His new memoir is called Swerve or Die, Life at My Speed in the First Family of NASCAR Racing. It's just a phenomenal memoir, whether or not you're into NASCAR. It's just a great, great family story and story of great success, really the American dream. So, Kyle, um, you know, you've seen NASCAR grow so much can you talk to us a little bit about how the sport has evolved and changed over the years? And in particular, you know, there, it is a Southern based sport. So there has been controversy, controversy um, given its basis in the South, like with the Confederate flag debate, for example, how do you think NASCAR has changed over time and handled the controversies that came its way?
1: You know, I think they've done a phenomenal job and, and I, I'm, I'm going to go all the way back to the very beginning. Um, if we go back to that very first race in 1949 um, and, and that my grandfather was in, uh, my father and I were talking about this not very long ago. Uh, almost 85 to 90 percent of the people that drove the cars, that brought the cars to the racetrack, that worked on the cars and that were there as fans um, were, were in the moonshine business. We're in the bootleg business. They were just a bunch of bootleggers. Mm-hmm. And that's a fact. I can't change that that's just a fact that's the way it was um but obviously as as society changed and things changed the manufacturers began to get into the sport in the 50s and and came into the sport into the 60s and and we went through the civil rights era uh we had a driver wendell scott uh, from danville virginia a, a, a black driver from from there great race car driver finally won one race one race and they wouldn't give him the trophy because he was in Jacksonville, Florida, and it was a white crowd. Um, So they had to confront that. But the competitors loved Wendell, because Wendell was a race car driver, and that's all they saw when they looked at him. It was a long time before Bubba came along, before Bubba Wallace, and I'll get to that in a minute. But the sport changed through the 60s. It changed, and it went through an era from from when – Manufacturers came into the sport and the fuel crisis and tobacco came into the sport in the 70s Uh, as as tobacco became non-gratis with with America. uh, Then we saw the telecommunications come into it. We've seen Coca-Cola. So many companies have come into the sport. And my point is, the sport has always been able to change and be what it needed to be at any given time and any given time in society. And at any given time on the racetrack. And the one thing that hadn't changed is what we do. We start at a white line. We run four or 500 miles and we end at the same white line. And that's what people come out to see. No matter what's going on in the rest of the world, that's what people have always come out to see. It is a Southern sport. Can't deny that either. It was born out of bootlegging and it was born out of kids, young men coming back from World War II, who had seen such atrocities and so much carnage, In Europe, you couldn't put them back on a farm in North Carolina and expect them to live the life they lived before. They had seen too much, they had grown too much, uh, and they let off steam, uh, obviously by by running moonshine and by racing cars. And that those two things came together to form NASCAR in the very beginning. We fast forward to where we are now, uh, with George Floyd, with Black Lives Matter, with so much going on in society, with so much change. Uh, as we look at at gender, as we look at race, as we look at so many outside influences, the sport has to change along with that. The sport has to be more inclusive. The sport has to be more welcoming. And I think they've done a tremendous job. NASCAR has done a tremendous job in recent years, in the last four or five years, of embracing that. Bubba Wallace standing up, uh, Bubba Wallace and, and the banning of the Confederate flag, that was a huge, huge moment. Huge moment, huge moment for Bubba, huge moment for the sport. A lot of fans didn't like it, and they went away. A lot of new fans came to the sport. They addressed it. They addressed it head on. We moved on to the next place. Um, So I think, you know, we have a sport that females can compete on on an equal basis. Haley Deegan, who runs in the Truck Series right now. So there are more and more minorities. We look at what the sport did this year. Uh, we went to L.A. to the Coliseum to run an exhibition race, to run one of our races there. Um, if you can't get the inner city, if you can't get the Latinos, the Hispanics, the black population to come to a NASCAR race, we'll bring one to you. We'll bring one to you. And I think that's what NASCAR has said. We'll, we'll, we'll bring it to you and expose you to what this sport is. Next year, we're going to the streets of Chicago. We'll race along uh, Lakeshore Boulevard there, or Lakeshore Drive uh, in Chicago, which is going to be pretty exciting. So... Uh, I think they continue to move. They continue to expand. They continue to be what a sport needs to be in the society we live in today. Uh, And they've been around for 70-some-plus years. So uh, they've done a lot right. There's been moments when things have not been right. There's been moments when things have been wrong. But I think the leadership at NASCAR with Ben Kennedy, with Lisa France Kennedy, with Jim France, I think as you look at that, they are so much more proactive than what we used to be so much more attuned to what's going on whether it be with the green movement, whether it be, it, there's so many things that are confronting every sport and every business today. I think NASCAR is in a good place.
0: Uh, well, that's really good to hear that, that that they're really moving in that direction because you, in order for any sport to stay alive, you've got to attract the next generation or two of fans and, and hold the fans that you already have. So it's kind of a fine line, right? Like you don't want to alienate the old time fans, you know, the, the ones that have really made the sport into what it is. But at the same time, you've got to look ahead to the future so i'm really happy to hear that nascar is doing that kyle and you know what it it really strikes me every time i watch a race at a time when there are so many issues tearing this country apart nascar is one of those rare things bringing people together and that's pretty special
1: yeah it, it really is you know i i am fascinated uh as I, as i look as this as i go on a sunday afternoon and i, I walk through the crowd um, Daniel Suarez, who is from Monterey, Mexico, and, and is our first, he is the first Mexican born champion that NASCAR has ever had. He won the Xfinity division a couple of years ago. He drives for, um, um, I can't even remember the name of the team, Justin Marks, uh, but he drives for those guys. He, is, so he along with Coca Cola, has started a program called Daniel's Amigos, and Coca Cola will bring the, the Hispanic, a lot of Hispanic kids, youth to the racetrack to expose them. Hopefully someday out of the group, we'll have more drivers. We'll have more engineers. We've already got a lot of fans. And and I think that's what we have to do. We have to, we can't just be a Southern white sport for the rest of our life. Sorry. That's just not going to happen. Uh, and that's what the sport was for so long. But I think once the sport recognized that it's embraced uh, everything else. And uh, I think there's, listen, the future is bright for the sport. When you've got companies like Coca-Cola and GM and uh, Ford and Chevy, and you've got so many companies that have come to the sport, Home Depot, uh, Pennzoil, so many companies that are looking at the sport, so many new owners. Michael Jordan owns a cup team. Pitbull owns a cup team. When you start looking at that, you've got to say, okay, there's diversity in ownership, diversity in drivers, diversity in fans, diversity in sponsorship, uh, this sport is healthy and growing, uh, and it's a good place to be. And I think that will attract a lot more fans in the future.
0: Oh, it's it's such great news. Yeah, any sport has to stay dynamic. So um, real final question, I guess, for you. I'm always curious about uh, professional athletes and the other sports that they watch. But you guys at NASCAR actually have a, another sport that's kind of similar, which is Formula One. Do you watch Formula One?
1: So here's the thing, and 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 I, and it's Thank you for asking this because motorsports is an incredibly small community, right? And 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 I think I think a lot of people lose sight of that. Sometimes is if I take all the if I take all the Cup drivers, all the top level Cup drivers, and all all the all the guys that work on the team and and all that stuff, it's probably seven or eight thousand people. Maybe a few more than that. It's not a huge segment of the population. You know what I mean? It is fascinating. So then you throw in drag racing. Then you throw in the the Xfinity and the Truck Series, uh, at the Camping World Truck Series. You throw in those guys. You throw in Formula One. You throw in IndyCar. It's not. Listen, we might fill up a good NFL stadium with everybody. You know what I mean? That that's about it. So we follow everything, and and it's so funny that you say that because um, I grew up, I grew up and. Obviously, you live in this in, in North Carolina, man. You got Duke, and Chapel Hill, and Wake Forest, and North Carolina, ACC basketball capital of the world. Uh, so you would think, you know, you, you would follow other sports. I followed racing. I followed Formula One. I followed motocross. I followed MotoGP. I followed dirt track racing. That that was my sport. So I followed every aspect of that, uh, and 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 it's funny. So everybody. I think everybody in our sport follows other sports or follows other stick and ball sports, but they all know about Formula One. They all know the IndyCar guys. They all know the dirt drivers. They all know everybody that comes along because, listen, someday you may have to race against those guys. You you need to know who they are when you have to.
0: Exactly. And I'm sure those Formula One guys are following NASCAR. (laughs) <laughs> for, sure. for sure for sure well kyle i can't thank you enough for your time today it's just such a joy and an honor to talk to you and especially because nascar is such an all-american sport and like i said it's just bringing people together at a moment in time where we're so torn apart and of course you're such a legend your family is so legendary in this sport that it's just been a delight to have you here with us today
1: Thank you very much for having me. I truly, truly appreciate it.
0: Of course. So oh, it's our great pleasure. The book is called Swerve or Die, Life at My Speed and the First Family of NASCAR Racing. And the author is the great Kyle Petty. I'm Monica Crowley. Thank you so much for joining us today. I'll see you next time. Okay, guys, that's going to do it for me here on this Labor Day. I hope you have had a fantastic Labor Day weekend with the ones you love. Hope you've relaxed and enjoyed and you're all teed up for heading into November and those elections. Don't forget, right here on Wednesday, we're going to talk to the legendary actor Robert Davi and the actor John James about their new movie, My Son Hunter. And then on Friday, we've got the iconic Kirk Cameron. He is going to be here with his new film. He's an extraordinary and legendary actor in his own right. I can't wait to talk to all of them. So the rest of the week here on the Monica Crowley Podcast is going to be incredible. Have a great start to your week. And I will see you right back here on Wednesday.
1: For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, offering professional grade supplies backed by product experts. So you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus,